don't know what that is. It's Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin. It's snaking clarinet working its way up to an unforgettable melody. The orchestra, the piano soloist meandering from blues to toe-tapping rhythms. Now this piece premiered in a concert this week in history called An Experiment in Modern Music on February the 12th, 1924 in Aeolian Hall, New York City. The incorporation of what was thought of as non-classical harmonic elements and, God forbid, jazz inflections outraged defenders of the genre boundaries of the time. Debate even started about what sort of music should be allowed to be classified as a rhapsody. All for this week in history, a look back at that time in New York, the music and innovation of George Gershwin and how he changed the musical scene, indeed soon dominating American music in the decades to come. Well, to take us through this musical look back at history, we have Simon Tedeschi with us, renowned Australian classical pianist and writer. Simon knows and loves the works of Gershwin and next month he'll join the Sydney Symphony Orchestra for Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue at Sydney Opera House's Concert Hall. Hello, Simon. Welcome to Nightlife, that's a lovely coincidence, isn't it? It really is. And uh, I I think it's uh, certainly not coincidental. Rhapsody in Blue has <laughs> played such an enormous part in my life. In fact, I can scarcely go through one concert without being asked to play it. And that was never intentional, let me tell you. And uh, just, uh, I suppose, through a number of, uh, of factors, I have um, become associated with that piece, which was written so such a long time before I was born. Yeah, I think, what, 1924? So this must be the 99th anniversary of it. Yes, which is um, incredible. And yet, uh, as we'll go on to say, somehow, and this is the mark of genius, I suppose, the work is still so ahead of its time and as fresh as ever. Mm. So do you have memories of hearing it for the first time at a young age and what you thought of it? I suspect that I heard it for the first time on recording. It may even have been ABC's own Tamara Anna Chivslovska, who is the daughter of my teacher, Anita Morn. And uh, I uh, I think I might have heard it. I was 11 or 12 and I, 
it must have been strange to me. It is a strange work. Um, and uh, I remember thinking, what is that? And I think I remember asking my mother, what is that? And uh, then later on, of course, I was asked to perform it for the first time, which was, if I recall, uh, with Tommy Tico and the, for the Ethnic Business Awards. <laughs> There you go. Uh, was that a big learning curve, perfor- learning it and performing it for the first time? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's a piece formally, uh, texturally like no other. And, uh, of course, as a, you know, 13 or 14-year-old, whenever I did it for the first time, I couldn't have possibly had the uh, sense of history that mm-hmm. I do now. Um, so a lot is, is intuited at that age. Um, but uh, it, it was I certainly know that I had never uh, played a piece like that before in terms of freedom mm. and uh, it's uh, the fact that it seemed to break all of the quote-unquote rules of classical music. So set the scene for us 99 years ago, um, the early 1920s. What was popular music like then? Well, it's uh, very interesting because, you know, we compare it to compare what pop music is now, I mean, we're in the age of TikTok, but uh, I imagine to some people it would have seemed uh, (laughs) quite as depressing, certainly the conservatives. Um, A hundred years ago, uh, jazz was all the rage and jazz had had emerged out of uh, New Orleans, out of African-Americans, but uh, of course, not just African-Americans, out of uh, Creole influences, classical influences, um, ragtime. Like any historical uh, artistic feature, it's not a linear thing. It's a, it's a very, very complex thing. And to look back on uh, jazz or Rhapsody in Blue or indeed what jazz is, is an immensely complex thing and entire books have been written about it. But popular music at the time um, was uh, certainly jazz-based, um, based on the language of the blues, even if that was not uh, taken up by all of the uh, European pianists or those who studied in the European tradition, many of whom uh, were conservative and saw it as degenerate. Mm -hmm. So um, how was music made popular back then? How did people find out about it? Because this is pre-radio. Yeah, well, before um, before radio, uh, you had people like George Gershwin who were song pluggers who would, you know, get up there like they do in still do uh, occasionally in David Jones and play, uh, you know, a popular song. Um, They would literally plug songs. But then, of course, this was also an era in which a piano was in many, many homes. Mm. You know, my my uh, grandparents, the first thing they did when they came to came to uh, Australia in the 30s was get a piano. And that's not because they were pianists, but you just got a piano. It was something that the the family just did. And so uh, people listened and uh, people went to events like uh, um, they danced to jazz. Um, it was more of a social thing. Um, really, as uh, the last hundred years has progressed, the the concept of technology has changed everything. So there's this amazing journey um, and 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 uh, interchange between technology and response to technology and music as social practice. Uh, so I guess what you you might hear a song at a jazz club when you were out at a dance, or maybe one of these song pluggers in the in the store, and then maybe you would buy the the sheet music and maybe sing that at home if you liked it. Absolutely. And one should also mention piano rolls. Um, They Mm. were very, very popular and they still exist and they are still, even now in the digital age, such an extraordinary technology. Piano rolls being the pianos that would play themselves. So you can have Gershwin in your own home um, and uh, Granger in your own home. An extraordinary uh, um, situation to have somebody of that calibre playing in your own home. 
So uh, we, were they just for the very rich, or did many people? I mean, I kind of always think about them in a Wild West kind of, um, you know, because you see it often sort of in Wild West uh, saloon bars, don't you, on TV? But uh, did many people have them? Yeah, look, it was certainly not universal in yeah. like a middle class thing that like TVs would come to mm. be. Um, but uh, it was, uh, I, I still find that uh, an extraordinary prefiguration of what was to come. Um, music had a, a, a very different, you know, a different uh, role to play. For instance, around that time and earlier was the melodrama, which was uh, which came prior to movies, and that was literally where people would accompany storytelling, say, told by a dad or a grand grandparent, around the fire, and that was the precursor in many ways to movies. And this uh, this would have been uh, a very popular thing for the the uh, families of European descendants in America and all over the world. So uh, I, what an amazing time that this mm. is when technology um, is uh, changing absolutely everything. And so in this respect, Rhapsody in Blue and Gershwin and jazz can't be seen as uh, separate from the history of America and the enormous changes that most of us lived through in the 20th century. Mm. Uh, Simon Tedeschi is here, Australian classical pianist and writer. He will be performing Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue at the uh, the Sydney Opera House next month. And it is the anniversary of Rhapsody in Blue and it's a premiere on February 12th, 1924 in New York City. So it's Simon, tell us about young George Gershwin and the kind of musical influences that led him to write Rhapsody in Blue. The influences are enormous. So Gershwin's family, like a lot of immigrants to America, were Jews from Russia who had to get out because of the pogroms. And so uh, George uh, was uh, somebody very immersed in in, uh, Jewish American culture. He he was familiar with the Yiddish theatre. Um, but uh, he was also a young piano prodigy, and uh, his first teacher regarded him as something extraordinary to look out for. Um, and so he had that classical background, and that is uh, something that permeates all of his music. Uh, you can hear as well as the language of the blues, which is possibly the most incredible part of Gershwin, um, because, again, not everybody would have championed that back then. Um, But you can hear the sound of the Russia that his parents came from. You can hear the sound of France. The relationship between America and France is no less complicated geopolitically than musically. Um, You can hear um, the, uh, the sounds of Latin America. But of course, with a genius like Gershwin, from the very, very earliest stages, you can hear something that is just uniquely Gershwin. He puts his own stamp on it. So... I suppose in many ways Gershwin's music from the very beginning is representative of America in terms of it's that that cliche, the melting pot. Um, he is in many ways all things to all people, but he's also the music of the metropolis. As cities were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, um, Gershwin's music needed to reflect that sense of manic intensity. And uh, um, that's why the uh, history of music is such a fascinating thing because there's, again, this interchange between technology and demographics and, uh, and also sociology. Um, you know, the music of uh, black America is so powerful and is really the, the uh, indigenous music of America. <clears throat> we live now, of course, in very interesting times in terms of what is culture, what can be taken from culture, what constitutes cultural or ethnic purity. Does such a thing exist? And the debate was no less fraught back then. Simon, take us back to the big night in 1924. It was actually called 
an experiment in modern music. So I guess people kind of knew that something was afoot and they were going to hear something different, didn't they? Yes, and it's amazing because really you can position this concert and this particular impasse as something that has always existed, classical music. All the way back to, for instance, just to give you an example of um, Schumann, who is regarded as one of the conservatives, and Wagner, who is regarded as one of the uh, the radicals. And it's no different in our time with, uh, you know, what is classical music in, in the TikTok world? And back then, what is classical music in the 1920s um, in a country that is both very, very old – say for the indigenous people, but is very, very young in terms of um, white people. It must have been incredibly, incredibly fraught. So when to return to your question, an experiment in modern music. What is modern music? Back then it was probably music that was written shortly around that time, but we can still now listen here in 2023 and say, well, that sounds like modern music. Um, so it's fascinating. It would have been intensely threatening for some people. It would have been tinged with true racial overtones for other people. It uh, potentially uh, would have been incredibly exciting for the uh, iconoclasts like uh, like Gershwin and the people who went to the concert, such as Zez Confrey, who is a wonderful jazz pianist, and Irving Berlin, who was an- another contemporary of, of Gershwin's who came from Siberia. But, you know, he's associated with American music. So American music, uh, like any other type of music that we consider to be uh, sort of pure in some kind of cultural sense is never pure because it's always Mm. a melange of everything else that came before. Mm. Music is a social practice and we take it from other people. Mm. So who would have gone? I mean, you mentioned some some of the composers there, but would it have been run-of-the-mill New York people, music fans of New York? Who would have been drawn to see this experiment in modern music that day? I think it would have been a whole range of people. I think there would have been critics. There would have been members of the public. There would have been people who love jazz. There would have been some people, some, you know, more sourpuss type people who Mm. didn't like jazz. Um, And there would have been a hell of a lot of promoters, um, producers. Um, It would have been a who's who of New Mm. York. Um, I uh, I think that uh, there would have been a lot of Jews there, um, because uh, the Jewish uh, the Jewish um, component of um, the musical population in New York was absolutely huge. Um, I think it would have been uh, an amazing melange of influences that would have sounded a lot like Rhapsody in Blue itself, mm. um, and yet I still think it would have been like a flash in the dark. Um, it would have been like uh, something that just came out of nowhere, um, because. Uh, there really is no piece like this that, mm. that I have ever encountered. But what would people have expected from Gershwin? Because he already had a reputation, didn't he, for mixing the, the classical, the blues, the jazz? He did. And yes, you can listen even to his first published piece, which is Rialto Ripples. You can hear the, the ragtime and you can hear the, the sort of um, the song plugger, the stride effect. And uh, this is a New York that already would have been familiar with Fats Waller, but for a Jew who was who had a very uh, ambiguous and ambivalent relationship with with uh, the white population of New York, to get up there to play music that sounded both familiar and unfamiliar, with traces of Latin America, certainly Black America in the blues, which goes right back to the oppression faced by by black people in America's history, but also the sounds of uh, of Europe, of classical Europe, of the expressionists like Schoenberg, but also people like Ravel. It would have been like nothing else. When you look at things that came before George Gershwin, um, there are people who are certainly visionaries, 
but George Gershwin took it to a whole new level um, in terms of the sheer breadth of colours and textures that he used. So we're going to have a listen to a piece from it, Simon, uh, and then I want you to tell us about the reaction to the concert. Maybe maybe what I'll do is I'll play a bit mm-hmm. softly and sure. you can explain what we're listening to and why we, you know, what listeners at home can sort of tune into. Well, you'll notice here that the piano is playing by itself. There's no orchestra. This would be normally considered to be a cadenza in a concerto. And a cadenza is a, is a place where the solo instrument can display or basically show off its full technical prowess. But where Gershwin is different, and this goes to the heart of what a rhapsody is, Rhapsody in Blue is essentially three large cadenzas. It's just piano with orchestral interludes. It is uh, something that throws the whole notion of concerto form out the window. Now, other composers had played with concerto form, um, you know, all the way back to Bach and Beethoven. But what Gershwin is doing is, uh, I mean, for instance, this place uh, where I've said just pick up now, the reason I can do that with Rhapsody in Blue is because Rhapsody in Blue is so bitty. It's something that doesn't really sort of hang together in a, like a, in a symphonic or concerto sense. And that was actually what Leonard Bernstein criticised it about. He said it was too bitty. I would uh, certainly disagree with that because what I think works about Rhapsody in Blue and makes it an incredible work is that in that typical American way, it just basically throws all the rules down the toilet and it says, well, screw the rules. And it works. If somebody like Gershwin is inculcated with the tradition of the past, which he was, then you can throw away all of those rules. And the thing is, it should be remembered, Gershwin did come from, uh, well, his family did come from Europe. He studied the European tradition. Um, this is the land of, of Rachmaninoff and Rimsky-Korsakov and Tchaikovsky. And Tchaikovsky, you know, you can hear these amazing Russian melodies, especially towards the end of Rhapsody in Blue um, in the big climax. So yeah, it's no, this is the um, this is actually the ending that I seem to have accidentally played, so... <laughs> well, that's... That's equally fine. And the reason, is, I mean, these big chords, these big rhapsodic chords, again, I'm using the word rhapsody. What is a rhapsody? And uh, a rhapsody is a work that is episodic in form. And uh, it, is, it doesn't work according, say, to, uh, it's not like a, a sonata or a concerto with A and then B and then C. It is something that, uh, that flows uh, organically in a single movement and it suits Gershwin's sort of songwriting style so well and yet the amazing thing is I think it holds together in that uh, you know almost like an American Abex painting it just holds together it has a structure but it's also free so that's why I'm able to say to you just go to seven minutes or 12 minutes whereas if we did that say even with the Tchaikovsky concerto or a Mozart concerto it would just sound weird. Um, that is also why I'm able to take Rhapsody in Blue as a solo work and make it five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, depending on how, how I'm meant to rush um, or whether I'm meant to get home on time. Um, and that's because Rhapsody in Blue is, is so free. It is so free and American. And of course, that whole sense of America and freedom, whereas here in Australia, we're all about the fair go. But in America, you know, that whole thing of freedom, a nation's ethos is tied up so much with uh, everything, and I find that incredible. Oh, wow. Now, I'm interested. I mean, the whole piece is 18 18 minutes, 46 seconds, the bit that I've got uh, that we've been playing from, but that's all he performed that that evening? Yes, I believe so, yes. Um, But, I mean, it's enough. Um, It's... uh, 
um, it it must have just hit people for six. I mean, I I stand to be corrected if that is not true. But I like what do you play after Rapstein Blue? Hearing that for the first time, what do you do? Um, it's uh, it must have, as I said before, you know, come out of thin air just like a flash of lightning. It must have been like hearing Bach improvise on the organ. Oh, wow. So what was the reaction like as people sat there for 20 minutes and filed out again, all chattering madly, I'm sure? Strangely, the reaction was not too dissimilar from what you get now. The, the what we call the jazz police, I think it was not jazz enough for them. Um, the <laughs> classical police uh, regarded it as, what the hell is this? Um, it's uh, not quite classical enough for us. But there were people in the middle as well. And altogether, the concert was a huge success. And I'd say, you know, the fact that United Airlines use it as their, uh, as their uh, theme mm. is um, proof in the pudding. Um, I always think that that's a shame in a way because people don't know what they're listening to in a sense. And I just feel like saying, do you know what this is every time I settle down for a 24-hour flight? People back then um, would have regarded the jazz musicians, would have regarded it, is this really jazz? It kind of sounds like jazz, but is it jazz? I mean, and that goes to the question of what is jazz? I mean, uh, that in itself is a complicated question. I already mentioned somebody like Fats Waller, who was a jazz musician, but what makes him a jazz musician? I suppose it's the fact that he improvised, but also the difference between, say, ragtime and jazz is where the beat falls in the bar. Is it two and four? That's more of a jazz feel, as opposed to one and three, which is Scott Joplin. So where does Rhapsody in Blue fit into all this? I'm often asked by people, is Rhapsody in Blue jazz? I say no, but it's jazzy and it's what I would call American <laughs> classical music. Yeah, right. Whatever that means. Well, yeah. So, did this make, I mean, how did this change the way Gershwin was perceived? Oh, look, I think as a result of that, I mean, he was perceived as an iconoclastic genius. And the proof of the pudding is that the year after he was asked to write Concerto in F. Concerto in F is um, an attempt for him to write a, again, quote unquote, um, more of a classical concerto. It it uh, it is a it is a success certainly, but it doesn't have that uh, extraordinary um, vision and drive and passion and breaking free that uh, Rhapsody in Blue does. I think that uh, um, George Gershwin, the fact that um, Porgy and Bess uh, continued and his his enormous success in writing musicals um, only. Uh, uh, just show how enormous Rhapsody in Blue became. And the fact that it was performed so many times after, you know, Oscar Levant and people like that, um, just just shows that it, it really struck a chord in America. It, uh, um, it's not, it went to the heart of the individual American's experience. Um, whenever I think of Rhapsody in Blue, I think of, you know, the huddled masses message on the Statue of Liberty. And you think of all those... Uh, and I think of that Kafka story, uh, um, America, where the immigrants are, you know, huddled together on a ship. And um, I also think of my own grandparents who didn't go to America but had a similar experience coming here. And, and for whatever reason, my, you know, late grandmother, who was not a musical woman at all, just adored Gershwin. And that was ironically her maiden name, Gershwin, but uh, no relation. Oh, oh, I bet you wish there was a relation. In a sense, but I'm also <laughs> glad I'm there isn't because then you're kind of expected to live on yeah. it and it's, uh, I don't want it to be. Mm. Um, and then you're also expected to play it a certain way and act a certain way. And then you're also expected to be like, oh, I'm going to be a, you know, trustee to the will or whatever it is. So I'm actually glad. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Uh, that was a nice fantasy of mine for a moment. Um, Simon Tedeschi is here, renowned Australian classical pianist and uh, writer. He is going to be performing Rhapsody in Blue at the uh, Sydney Opera House, uh, Friday 17 March, Saturday 18th and Sunday the 19th of March. When you sit down to play it. Does it feel new every time? I mean, how, what's, what's that experience like when you must have, how many times must you have played it by oh, now? Oh, look, goodness me, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I think I've played it possibly more than anyone in the world. I think it's, I, I think it's very likely. Wow. Um, I, uh, have you talked to Guinness World Records about that? <laughs> that is not actually a bad idea. Yeah. But um, Rhapsody in Blue, already when you're playing it with somebody or with a group like the SSO, you're already playing a displaced Rhapsody in Blue because the orchestral version was not written by Gershwin but by Ferdy Grofe. Um, the original version was for Jazz Band, which I have also done. So uh, that is an, an, an interesting side note. But when I perform it, my, my own wife testifies to the fact that it's different every time. Um, and that is not just because of the need to make it different and because of the the uh, particularities of every performance being different, but because of the the mastery of the piece itself. There is just something just so free and uh, something about the breath of the piece, something about the air and the optimism of the piece. Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue is not weighed down by any angst whatsoever. Mm. I think that's one of the uh, rare things you can say for classical music. Um, classical music is very often very angsty. And there's only a few exceptions. Rhapsody in Blue has, for me, no angst whatsoever. It has sadness, but it is all about surging into the future with technology and machines and trains. Speaking of trains, uh, that's where he got the idea. He was on a trip uh, from, I believe, Boston to New York or New York to Boston. He heard the sound of the trains, and that gave him the idea for Rhapsody in Blue. So, again, here's another example of classical music and technology being one and the same thing in many respects, like Beethoven, the technology of the piano uh, leading him to write the very things that would cause the piano to need to get bigger. It's a constant chicken and egg thing. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Now, Simon, I'm sure you're not dragging audiences in to play to them for 19 minutes. <laughs> it's 19 minutes. Oh, yeah. Oh, your concert, though? Oh, yeah. Um, and that's nothing. That's a short. That's a short. Um, I mean, if I played Brahms 1, it'd be 50 minutes. So, um uh, I am playing uh, 19 minutes, and of course, that's not the whole concert. That's the, what I uh, meant. <laughs> yeah, the, the orchestra playing uh, other things as well. Normally, yeah. concertos are anything from about 19 minutes to about, uh, yeah, 40 or 50 at the outer. Gershwin's uh, Rhapsody in Blue is a very short work, but what's mm. amazing about it is it's very dense. So he mm. crams so many moods and styles in that uh, you feel you've got a, a real gamut of the musical experience. Mm. It's it's certainly not uh, it's not in uh, one voice whatsoever. Mm. All right. Well, we might go out with a bit more of Rhapsody in Blue. Simon, thank you so much for coming in and telling us uh, a bit about it and, and I guess your, your relationship with it and Simon's New York stories in which he'll play Rhapsody in Blue and then the orchestra will play other things. So, again, you don't have to go there for only 19 minutes. There'll be plenty more to experience, but I'm sure the highlight will be Rhapsody in Blue. So that's at the Sydney Opera House Friday, 17 of March, also the 18th and the 19th. Simon, thank you so much for coming in and talking to oh, us. And please uh, come to the concert to hear the real thing. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, that is Simon Tedeschi, a renowned Australian classical pianist. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.